Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Sunday. I uh, just want to throw a big Happy Father's Day out there to all the dads in internet land. Uh, I love that our church is full of dads that love Jesus, that are discipling their kids, bringing the gospel to bear on their families, raising their children up to be disciples who make disciples, who are following Jesus, fulfilling Jesus's mission to our city. So pumped. Hope you feel loved. Hope you feel blessed. Uh, if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up, go to Esther chapter nine. We got to get right to work uh, today. We have, this is a doozy of a text, okay? This is the, the day where you wake up and you're like, man, I sure am thankful I don't have that guy's job because this is one of those texts, okay? So uh, Esther chapter nine, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Esther. This is our second last week in it. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday in the book of Esther. Let's get right to work. Esther chapter nine, picking up in verse one. Here is what the author records. On the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. And no one could stand against them because of, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of all the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because of fear of Mordecai. The fear of Mordecai had seized them. Verse 4, Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. All right, let's stop there for a second. Let me just unpack what's going on here, help you understand where we're at in the story of Esther and, and make some sense of all this. Uh, so up to this point, there's been kind of this bubbling conflict between these two characters, one by the name of Haman, the other by the name of Mordecai. And this conflict has been arising and, and it's come to a head. On one hand, we have Haman. And Haman, although a, a historical figure, a character in this story, is much more than that. Uh, Haman was not a good man. Haman was an evil man. Uh, and in fact, Haman represents evil in this story. If you follow the, uh, the way that Haman is introduced to us in the book of Esther, he's referred to as Haman the Agagite, meaning he came from the line of a king by the name of King Agag, who was king over the Amalekites. The Amalekites are known in the Old Testament portion of the Bible as the number one enemy of the people of God. They are constantly coming up against God's attempt to use his people to bring about the redemption of the world. And so Haman is not just a bad guy, although he is a bad guy in this story, he actually is a, a representation of or a picture of the greater evil of sin that exists in our world, the greater evil of Satan and his effects in our world. And this man, Haman, issues an edict against God's people, much like his people have been doing all throughout the story of God up to this point, whereby all the Jews, all of God's people were to be slaughtered in the nation of Persia. So Haman, bad guy, really, really bad guy, picture of evil, a picture of the enemy and the enemies of God. 
On the other hand, we have this man named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, not really a good guy. Again, if you, you know, if you've been following us in this series, there's not really good people and bad people. There's bad people and there's Jesus when we read the Bible. And Mordecai is very much a picture of that. What we see in Mordecai is that he, uh, while a follower of the God of the Bible, while definitely uh, Jewish in ethnicity, isn't really fully sold out to God himself. He has one foot firmly planted in the nation of Israel, but then another foot firmly planted in the nation of Persia. Uh, but throughout the story, eventually, Mordecai comes to this place where he puts his faith in the God of the Bible. And through a number of providential circumstances, what we see is this great reversal that occurs, where Haman goes from uh, ruling and reigning in the empire underneath King Xerxes, of course, to, to death. A couple chapters ago, his life comes to an end, and Mordecai comes and takes his place. And Mordecai issues a counter-edict whereby uh, the people of God are going to be attacked by the Persians as a, in accordance with Haman's edict, but Mordecai's counter-edict makes it so that they are actually allowed to defend themselves. And so Mordecai, while Haman is a picture of evil, the enemies of God, Satan, sin, death, hell, all, all bad, all evil that is all woven throughout the story of God, Mordecai is a picture of the goodness and grace of God. He's a picture of God's grace and favor, his unearned favor, his unearned merited grace and love, whereby he chooses Mordecai. It's not because Mordecai's good. If you study the book of Esther, you won't see that Mordecai's a good guy, and that's why God chose him. He gets chosen by God because God is good. And so we get these two pictures, one of the enemies of God and one of the people of God, one of Haman, one of Mordecai. And this is a massive theme all throughout the Bible, that all of humanity falls into one of two categories. Either we are in the line of Haman, where we are the enemies of God, or we are in the line of Mordecai, where we, whereby we have been chosen by God, saved by God, where we have received God's unearned, un, unmerited grace and favor and love. There's really no third option. Uh, some of you would hear this, that you yourself are in one of these two categories, and you would say, I don't know that I'm actually a follower of Jesus or a follower of the God of the Bible, but I, but I, don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm evil. I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm an enemy of God. The reality is this, the way that the Bible talks about humanity, as we've already alluded to, is that there are no good people. It's not that there are some good people and some bad people, and God saves the good people and, and discards the bad people. It's that all people are bad. All people are wicked. All people are broken. All people uh, have sin. That's what the Bible calls it, have sin that stains their heart, stains their life. And it is by God's grace, his grace, not your effort, not your work, not your religious obedience, not your attempts to make wrong what, uh, make right what was wrong, but by God's grace that some are saved. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians talks about this so clearly. He calls those who are followers of Jesus children and friends with God. But it's because of God's great mercy, his love, and his favor, and because of the work that Jesus has done for us in our place, dying in our place for our sins on the cross, that we can receive the grace, the love, and the mercy of God. But before that, here's what, here's what Paul says about us. He says we're enemies with God. He says we're children of wrath. It's, it's not great. It's a, it's a picture of the degree to which humanity is broken. 
But there's this beautiful truth that is woven through the book of Esther. It's woven through all of the Bible. If you go back and you listen to what we've been teaching out of the book of Esther, read the book of Esther, you're just going to see a whole lot of mess, a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of mistakes. But you see this reality whereby the grace of God chooses to work in and through certain people to save, rescue, and redeem. It's not that they're good or some are good and others are bad. It's that God is good and God saves some. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question that the Bible is constantly asking of us, confronting our hearts and calling us to ask of ourselves is, which am I? Am I a friend or am I an enemy? Am I a friend or am I a foe of Jesus? Friends, this is the most important question you can ever ask of your own life. I tell my kids all the time, this is what I say to my kids all the time, second most important question you can ask, my kids are starting to get older now, this is starting to become a thing, Second most important question you need to ask of yourself is who are you going to marry? It's a really important question. The person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, it's a big deal. You know, as someone who's going to have grandchildren one day, I want to know that the, you know, the husband or the wife of my kids is going to do a good job raising my grandbabies, teaching them to love Jesus and loving and serving alongside my kids as they follow Jesus. It's really important. Person you choose to marry helps you leave a good earthly legacy, your kids, your grandkids, will they love, will they serve and follow Jesus? Really important question. But it's not the most important question. The most important question, the most important question that you need to ask yourself, that I need to ask myself, that we all, that we all need to be asking is who do I worship? Who do I serve? Who have I given my life to? Have I put my faith and my hope and my trust and in Jesus, in, in the God of the Bible, in the God that is over the story of Esther, do I know him? While picking a good spouse can help leave a good earthly legacy, the answer to that question determines your eternity. Your eternity. Who do you worship? Who are you following? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it Jesus? As he's been revealed to us, you know his love, you know his grace, you know his mercy. The beautiful, the beautiful truth, and this is what we're seeing in the book of Esther. I mean, these people, Mordecai, he's not looking for God. He didn't wake up in the morning on this quest to seek God, on this spiritual pilgrimage to look for him. But what we see is that God moves and he works despite the brokenness in Mordecai's life, to choose him, to save him, to redeem him, to restore him, and to use him. You might be scrolling the internet right now, sitting on the toilet, going to the bathroom, on Facebook, listening to this, and this is God's loving pursuit of you, that you could hear this and respond. And so the question that we must first ask is, who do we worship? Who have we given our life to? That's what the book of Esther is calling us to seek out. And what we see here is that God's people, they are being attacked by Haman, by or by uh, the Persians, rather, as a result of Haman's edict. And they respond because of Mordecai's counter edict. They prepare. They prepare for battle. They prepare to fight against evil. And then look at what happens next, picking up in verse five, it says this. Now, let me just warn you here. Okay, this, the book of Esther has been a difficult book to preach through uh, for sure. 
Uh, Esther chapter 9 is perhaps the most difficult passage in the entire book of Esther to read, but to understand, but also to preach through, okay? So this, this is going to be a doozy, so buckle up. Here we go, Esther chapter 9, pick up verse 5. Here's what it says. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they, what they, they did what they pleased to those who hated them, did whatever they wanted. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So the Persians come, they attack God's people. What do God's people do? They take up arms, they go to protect themselves, and they fight back. They fight back, they fight off the Persians, they, they fight off those who are coming to kill them. They did whatever it says, they did whatever they pleased to do to them. And then it gets a little hairier. It says this in verse 7, they also killed... There's some great names in here, by the way. The book of Esther, chock full of uh, great names. If you're ready to have a baby, and there are a number of uh, families in our church that are getting ready to have a baby, I highly recommend going through the book of Esther to pick out a name. Okay, here's 10 really great name options for you. Uh, they also killed Perdashtha, Dolphin, Astha, Poratha, Adalia, Ardathia, Parmashta, Arsea, Ardea, those are the twins, and Vaisatha. Great names, great name options there. Verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman. Okay, so don't miss this. This is important. If you're a Bible underliner, this is an important part of the story. The author is wanting us to notice this. So these are the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamathida, the enemy of the Jews. And then notice this. It says this in verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Okay, so what's happening here? We have this ugly scene whereby the Persians come and attack God's people. God's people take up arms and they fight back. There's a lot of blood. It says here that 500 of the Persians are killed. Specifically, the 10 sons of Haman are also killed. What does this have to do with anything? How do we make sense of a text like this whereby we see the people of God fighting, killing, destroying, doing horrible things. Well, whenever the Bible writers are writing their stories, what we have to understand is that biblical authors are not just writing to give us facts and data. They, they actually are trying to tell a bigger story. So if you go to verse 10, notice what it says in verse 10. It says, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. This uh, phrase, this verse happens three times in chapter nine of the book of Esther. There's three times where the author is going to tell us that they did not lay hands on any of the plunder. And the obvious question that we have to ask is why is that detail in there? Because a lot of times what the author is going to do is he's going to leave these little clues that help us understand a bigger point that he is trying to make. And so some of us, some commentators, some of us would read, a, you know, a verse like this and, and we would immediately say, well, the reason that they didn't take some of the plunder is because, uh, you know, the, the author was trying to show us that uh, what God's people were doing here is, you know, they were showing some measure of restraint. It's not, it's not why this is here. What the author is trying to do is he's trying to make a bigger point about what was actually happening in the story. Was there a battle? Yes, there was a battle, but what did this battle represent? 
In the same way that Haman represents evil and Mordecai represents God's saving work of his people, in the same way that Haman represents Satan and sin and Mordecai is this picture of God's goodness and his grace to overcome evil, the biblical author is trying to paint a picture for us of something more significant here. Now, if you remember, this is a thread that we have pulled on a number of times as we've been going through the book of Esther. I've already alluded to this, but Haman was referenced as Haman the Agagite comes from the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the arch enemies of God's people in the Old Testament, the beginning of the story of God. Esther chapter 2, or Esther chapter 3 rather, lays out for us uh, the origin of Mordecai. Mordecai comes from the line of Kish, who comes from the line of Saul. Saul was one of uh, Israel's greatest kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have this story where God gives Saul an order. He issues an edict to Saul on behalf, to God's people, uh, sorry, gives an edict to Saul on behalf of God's people. And he says, I want you to go and kill and destroy the Amalekites. And I don't want you to take any plunder. Nothing. 1 Samuel chapter 15, what happens? Samuel goes, or uh, Saul goes rather. He, there's a battle with the Amalekites. Many lives are lost, but Saul doesn't obey God. God tells him to wipe out the Amalekites and take no plunder. What does Saul do? He does not wipe out the Amalekites and he takes the plunder. He compromises. He chooses to not obey God. And as a result of his unwillingness to obey, as a result of his compromise, evil prevails. The Amalekites live on. In fact, the only reason that Haman still lives is because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul did not obey the commands of God. Anytime we compromise, anytime we do not do exactly what it is that God calls us to do, leads us to do, there's going to be death. There's going to be evil that prevails as a result of our unwillingness to serve, love, and follow Jesus. We see this right in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of the story of God where Adam and Eve, they compromise, they sin. God gives them an order. He gives them a command. They choose to rebel. They choose to fall away. And, and there's death that ensues. There's evil that ensues as a result of their unwillingness to love and serve and follow God. The Apostle Paul lays this out really clearly in the book of Romans when he says the wages of sin is it's death. That whenever we compromise, whenever we choose to do something that we know that God does not want us to do, it's always going to end in death. And this is what happens to Saul. So back to this issue of the plunder, if you remember back to Esther chapter 8, when Mordecai gives the counter edict to Haman that God's people are allowed to defend themselves, you'll remember that Mordecai says you're allowed to take plunder. But they don't. Why? In Deuteronomy chapter 20, God gives the rules of engagement whenever his people are going to fight a holy war. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, he specifically says, when you are going to fight a holy war, you are to take no plunder. Why? Because their pl the plunder is evil. The Amalekites are evil. Even their possessions are evil. It's a picture of evil. I want you to have nothing to do with evil. And here, God's people, 
defend themselves, and they choose to take no plunder. What's happening? The author is giving us a clue to tell us that there's something much more significant that is happening here than than just a, a skirmish between God's people and the Persians. That this is actually a picture of God's ultimate defeat over evil. In fact, that's why the ten sons of Haman are mentioned. Because what, what, what God is trying to show us, what the biblical authors are trying to show us, is that, that through this event right here, this event is foreshadowing. It's a picture of the ultimate defeat of evil. Haman is dead, but it's not enough that Haman is dead. Haman's sons are dead. The Amalekites are finished. Evil is taken care of. It is gone. And what we're seeing here, what we're seeing here is the justice of God put on display. The justice of God against evil put on full display for us to see. And my suspicion is there's many of us who would read a text like this, hear about a God who would, would deal with people in this way. And you would say, I don't want anything to do with that God. I love the God that gives out hugs, gives out teddy bears, gives out uh, participation ribbons where everybody gets a prize and God loves everyone. But a God who would do this? God who would judge, a God who would condemn evil, want nothing to do with it. It it offends our modern sensibilities. Uh, But there's something deeply ironic about taking that position when it comes to this issue of the justice of God. I mean, if you just think about where we're at as a culture right now, this moment that we find ourselves in, we're people right now who are screaming out for justice. We're longing for justice. We're desperate for justice. The last couple of weeks, we've had protests and marches that are crying out for what? Justice, that regardless of race, gender, orientation, ethnicity, religion, all people should experience Justice. They, they should be loved equally. They should be supported. They should be given a fair shot at life. That there have been injustices and we're, we're calling out for those to be done away with and we're, we're calling out for justice because we love justice. Justice is good. Justice is, is right. We are made in the image and likeness of God and He's put that on our hearts that we should want justice. But here's the ironic thing. We want justice, but we want it without the judge. We we want to be the judge. We want to be the jury, and we want to be the executioner. We love justice when, when we get to decide who is right and who is wrong. But when it's God, we tap. We want nothing to do with that. But here's the problem the job of judge of the world, (laughs) it's it's above our pay grade. Your resume may be great, but you're not qualified to determine 
justice for the world, nor am I. That doesn't mean we can't speak out against oppression. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but when what I am saying is when we put God on trial as though he is somehow an inadequate judge, we are punching out of our weight class. I mean, just think about this with me for a second. Maybe you've had this experience where you're driving, you're driving on the road. You're on the highway, driving away. Somebody flies by you in the, in the passing lane. What do you think to yourself? Man, that guy's crazy. You see how fast he's going? Unbelievable. Then somebody drives past you, they pull in front of you, and they slow down. What do you think? What's wrong with this moron? Why are they driving so slow? Why is he driving so slow? You know who you never condemn? Yourself. You know who's always driving the perfect speed? You, me. If you're driving faster than you, not good. Slower than you, not good. But the same speed as you, perfect. Perfect. Do you see the problem? The problem is we, we lack the ability to see our own brokenness. We lack the ability uh, to be objective because we don't recognize that we too are part of the problem. Uh, I mean, if, again, if you go on social media right now, like I miss the days when social media was like funny cat videos and people posting pictures of their lunch. Because now you go on there and it's like literally, it's a war zone. It's a landmine field and you're just stepping around being careful what you post, who you comment on, what you like, because it could get squirrely in a hurry. Like I had a friend the other day who posted a video. It's just so deeply ironic. In the name of justice, he posted a video of a person of color punching uh, a, a, a white person who was wearing a, a Nazi patch on his arm right in the face, knocking him out cold. And, and the post had the title above it, hashtag justice. It's not justice. That's just more brokenness. That's just more sin. That's just more evil. And the problem that we have is we lack the ability to judge. And what the Bible calls us to do is to entrust to him who judges justly, and that's God. If you do have a Bible, go to, go to Revelation chapter 21 with me for a second. Revelation chapter 21 is a picture of what is going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, it's a picture of what God is going to do when he restores all things to the way that they're supposed to be. And look at what he says in Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John writes this, revealed to him by Jesus. So this is post-resurrection. This is post-ascension. Jesus has come back. He's restored all things new. Revelation 21. This is good stuff, okay? This is the stuff we love about Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this good stuff. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things passed, has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these things down for they are worthy and true. We, we hear verses like Revelation 21 and it's this great picture of, I think it's the world we long for. 
Other portions of the book of Revelation, I believe it's Revelation chapter 7, where, where we get this picture of every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. And we hear that. We hear this world that is the way it is supposed to be. And we say, we want that. We want it. If you go to Revelation chapter 20, right before Revelation chapter 21, do you know what happens? We see this picture of Jesus destroying Satan, crushing evil. And then we have this picture of what the biblical authors call the great white throne judgment, where Jesus comes and he judges. He judges. All kinds of images for this woven throughout the Bible, but he separates the sheep from the goats. He separates the wheat from the chaff. You see, in order for there to be a Revelation 21, there has to be a Revelation 20. Going back to what I said earlier, there's two people. There's Haman, there's Mordecai, there's the friends of God and the enemies of God. It's those whom God saves and everyone else. And God will restore all things to the way they are supposed to be. But he will do so through the judgment of evil. And what we get in Esther chapter 9 is this picture of God who is doing away with evil. We long for justice, but we want it without the judge. And Jesus says, I'm the judge. Will you trust me? Is it possible the one who made you knows you and loves you, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke the universe and the cosmos into existence, he may actually know more than you and I know. Story goes on. Esther chapter 9, picking up in verse 11. The number of those uh, who were killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king. So the numbers are coming into King Xerxes. He's starting to hear about what's happening. Verse 12, the king said to Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will be granted. So Esther has the ear of the king. She has the favor of the king. He, he's saying, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And look at what she, look at what she asks. It's, it's a little weird. Verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So Xerxes says to Esther, I want to give you whatever you want. What do you want? Here's what she says to him in response. Well, it'd be great, Xerxes, if you would let my people have another day of killing. And what I would really like to do is take Haman's ten sons who are already dead and crucify them. Impale them on poles. We've talked about this at great length, but the Persians were the ones who invented crucifixion. And 
when the author of Esther writes describing impalement, he's actually talking about crucifixion, whereby they would take a, a large pole, stick it through a person, and hang them on it as a means of making a spectacle of them. So Esther wants another day of killing, and she wants to crucify Haman's already dead sons. What? Let me just say really quickly, this should shatter the idea that somehow Esther is a hero. Like what we see here is, is the dark side of Esther, right? Like this is the, the broken side of Esther. This is, this is sin. What she's asking for is sin. Uh, there, are, there are people who romanticize the story of Esther and paint this picture of her that she's this wonderful woman of great faith. Friends, nothing could be further than the truth. Like, I mean, some of you are going to name your kids Esther and you hope they grow up to be like Esther. Maybe not verse 13, hey? Like, just wipe that part out. No. If my daughter grew up to be like Esther, I'd be like, you probably, let's just leave that there. We see the brokenness of Esther, though. We see her sin. We see her, her desire for more blood. But look at what else happens here. Look at the rest of this section. Picking up in verse 14. So the king commanded that this be done. King says, let's do it. Esther's got the king's ear. An edict was issued in Susa. And, uh, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they put to death in Susa 300 men. Notice this. Bible underliner. Pay attention. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. What's going on here? We get this beautiful picture that God is painting for us. Again, remember, they did not lay their hands on the plunder is the author's way of saying there's something more going on here. There's something more going on here than just Esther's, uh, Esther's sin. There's something more going on here than just another day of fighting. There's something more going on here uh, than just these 10 sons of Haman being impaled. There's a, there's a bigger story that is being revealed and being told to us. Esther's desire was to take the sons of Haman and make a spectacle of them. She wanted to put them on the pole so everyone else would know how great Mordecai was and, and how great she was and how bad Haman was. She wanted to make a spectacle of Haman and his evil ways through the death of his sons. And what we see, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the story of God, we get this picture where Adam and Eve rebel, they sin because of the temptation of Satan, who uh, Haman is a picture of the, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate Haman is Satan. Haman's a picture of, of evil and sin and Satan. And God comes in and he gives this edict in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We talked about it last week where he says, Satan, your head will be crushed. Through the, through the offspring of Eve, your head is going to be crushed, but not before the heel of her offspring is bruised. You will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. Evil will be undone. And what we see here in Esther chapter 9 is this, this picture, this broken picture of God's redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, what, what God is talking about is this picture of Jesus going to the cross. It is in Jesus going to the cross that he is going to crush the head of, of Satan. But it is in Jesus going to the cross that his heel is bit. He literally has to shed his blood and have his body broken in order for the head of Satan to be crushed. And what we see here in Esther chapter 9 is this this reality where the sin of Esther, the brokenness of Esther is actually going to be used for the glory of God. 
In Genesis chapter 3, God says, I'm actually going to use the sin of Adam and Eve to destroy the serpent. That which was intended for evil, I am going to use for good. You think about this with me for a second. God could have done anything to deal with sin. In that moment, he could have just wiped his hands of the whole thing. He could have just said, I'm going to start over. He could have taken the snake and stepped on it himself. He could have rear naked choked it, right? He could have gone Jake the snake on it and given it a good old-fashioned DDT and just ended its life. But he doesn't. He has this long, drawn-out story full of broken people making mistakes, kings who sin, prophets who fail, Esther's chapter 9, verse 13. Why? So that Jesus can come. So Jesus can come in the flesh. He can live a perfect life, the life that Adam and Eve were supposed to live, the life that Esther was supposed to live, the life that you and I were supposed to live. And Jesus ultimately goes to the cross, gives up his life, His heel is is bitten. His blood is shed. His body is broken. But in doing so, he crushes the head of the serpent. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, he says this, Colossians chapter 2, talking about The work of Jesus on the cross, picking up in verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so you're you're living, verse 13, you're living the brokenness of Esther, you're you're living what we just talked about, uh, being enemies or foes of God, God made you alive with Christ, right? Just like he chooses Esther, just like he chooses some of you to move from enemy to friend, God makes us alive in Christ. He forgives us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this. It's good stuff, church. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. What does he do? Jesus goes to the cross. And in that moment, it looks as if evil is winning. It looks as if Satan is winning. It looks as if God is failing. It's not just the bite of a heel, but it's actually the destruction of Jesus. And God takes the evil of that moment and he does the ultimate reversal whereby It is this moment that crushes the head of the serpent. It doesn't just crush the head of the serpent. He makes him look foolish in front of everyone. You thought you were winning and you've lost. You're done. He makes a spectacle of them. Genesis 3 is pointing forward to the cross. Esther chapter 9 is pointing forward to the cross where it looks like Esther is acting out of selfish ambition, out of her flesh, out of her brokenness, and she is. But God comes into that moment and he redeems it to make a spectacle out of evil. And some of us are sitting here and we're thinking to ourselves, I, 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 you know, maybe not as bad as Esther. I've never wanted to crucify 10 dead people before, but I'm pretty bad. 
right? Like I'm junior varsity compared to Esther, but I've done some bad things. I've screwed up my marriage. I've screwed up my kids. I've screwed up my life. I've, I've done all sorts of horrible things. And you kind of feel like you're done. You're done. There's no way to fix what you've messed up. The beautiful reality of the grace of God is that he comes into these moments and he saves us. But he doesn't just like save us from our sin. He actually uses our sin. He redeems it. He redeems Esther's sin. He redeems your sin. He redeems my sin. He, re- he redeems our sin. So, so if you're in that camp, the Haman camp, the enemies of God camp, like it's not too late. It's, it's never too late. Uh, this week I heard, I heard a story of a gal in our church who was, she's just been through a lot. The last eight, nine, ten years, she's been through a lot. I think she would say, I've made a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of regrets in my life. There's a lot of things I wish I could have a do-over on. And this week she had the opportunity to connect with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who's not a part of our church family, struck up a conversation with her. They started swapping stories. And this gal that she was connecting with had a very similar story. And God used the brokenness of her past. And he said, I'm just redeeming this. I'm going to use this in your life to give you the opportunity to speak into this person's life, to love them, to show them there's a better way, to show them that there's grace, to show them that there's forgiveness, to show them that there's mercy, to show them that there's hope, to show them that I can come in and clean up the mess and redeem the mess and use the mess and save the mess. It's never too late. We're never beyond the grace of God. We're never without hope. Not even Esther. Even Esther can be saved by the God of the Bible and used by the God of the Bible. And if she can, so can we. Chapter 9 closes. Here's what we see. Verse 16, meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. There it is, third time. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, where Esther asked for Xerxes to extend, extend the edict, they had assembled on the 13th and the 14th, uh, and the 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of uh, joy and feasting and a day of giving presents to each other. So what's happening here? God's people have been saved. They've been redeemed. They've been rescued. This is what we've been waiting for. The whole story has been, you know, kind of coming to this moment, culminating in this moment where God's people, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be saved? And they're saved. And I had this moment as I was just now, even as I was reading it, I had this moment as I was preparing this week where I read this and 
You know, a lot of times you watch a movie, you read a book, and it comes to the culmination, like the story, and everything gets resolved, and it, it feels happy. It feels like, oh, that's good, right? You're smiley, you got the warm fuzzies on the inside. It's good stuff. I don't have that feeling when I read Esther chapter 9. I mean, on one hand, I hear the redemption of God's people, and it's like, that's amazing, God saved his people. But then on the other hand, I look at how it happened, and I say, really? Like this? This is, this is how you chose to save them? And there's like this tension in my heart. It's the same tension that I feel when I look at the cross. I look at the cross, and on, on one hand, I look at Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out, the pain he goes through, the humiliation he experiences. I listen to him, I hear his words cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and much more than the physical pain and the physical anguish is is the reality of experiencing separation from God the Father, where the Son and the Father experience separation, where the Father turns his face from the Son. And as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus actually becomes our sin. and He's so hideous in the eyes of God the Father that he can't even look at him. And, and I look at that Jesus and I think to myself, oh my gosh, there's an uneasiness in me. It's my sin that put him there. It's my brokenness that put him there. And I feel this sense of guilt. I feel this sense of shame. But then on the other hand, I hear Jesus on the cross. I want you to listen. I want you to listen to his voice as he cries out, it's finished. It's finished. Your sin is finished. Evil is finished. It's taken care of. You, you have been saved. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. There is, there is no more. The righteousness of Jesus has been poured out, given to you as a gift. And your sin has been placed on him, taken away from you. And now when the Father looks at you, he sees, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And we move from enemies of God to friends. To friends. The gospel is good news. It's good news that God loves us, that he cares about us, that he saves us. Despite our brokenness, despite our sin, and despite our folly. And the question we have to answer is, which one are we? Are we the friends of God or are we his enemies? And his invitation to us right now is that we would come to him, that we would receive him, that we would put our faith, our hope, and our trust in him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you. This text, this is messy, but our lives are messy. You work in the mess. You work in the brokenness. You don't just wash your hands of us and leave us on our own, but Lord, instead you enter in 
you humble yourself, and you save us. And your salvation is available to all of us. And for that, Lord, we thank you. May we come to you. May we keep coming to you. Holy Spirit, may you keep drawing us in. Pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.